What was wrong with the church between, oh, 1350 and 1700? Why was reform needed? What were the main issues that led to the corruption of the Western church? Who were the most significant personalities that led reform movements and why were most of them named John? Why is reform often avoided by institutions and how can we tell when our own institutions are in need of reform? What was the fallout of the split in the church as a result of these reforms? We're gonna talk about all of that and pretty much only that in this first installment of our new season of Theology On Air, a look at the reformers. So thank you for joining us for today's podcast. This is the first of not only our fourth season of the Theology On Air podcast, but really an entirely new format. We used to do a weekly show which covered the gamut of current events, topical interviews, books of the Bible, even the occasional debate. It was based on our beginning as a weekly one-hour radio show. But the podcast format has evolved, and we wanted to offer something that was more in-depth and topically centered. So each season of the Theology on Air podcast will now be centered around a theme. We'll be researching particular topics, bringing in experts, and doing deep dives more than before. Our next season, for example, we'll look at all things related to sex, since our audience seems so interested in the topic. In the future, we may look at uh, the most commonly misunderstood biblical passages, or the most important church fathers, or the most perplexing issues surrounding church and state. But as Theology on Tap is an ecumenical ministry that includes Christians of varying traditions, we thought we would kick off this format with a look at our respective traditions through the eyes of the men who gave rise to them, the Reformers. We'll look at the Johns, Wycliffe, Hus, Calvin, and Wesley, in addition to Martin Luther, the English Reformation, the Anabaptist movement, and the Catholic response with the Council of Trent. This really will cover centuries of history and set the stage for virtually every church tradition in the West. Like, have you ever wondered why Methodists and Baptists or Episcopals and Presbyterians believe different things? While we can't go into granular detail, we'll try to unpack the major events that formed the Lutheran, Calvinist, Methodist, Baptist, Anglican, and Catholic churches. Before we get there, we really need to do a little prep work on the state of the church in, let's say, the 14th century. Efforts to reform the church had been proposed before that, but it was John Wycliffe who's really seen as the, quote, morning star of the Reformation. But how and why did it get to that point? I'm Sarah Stone. I am the Outreach Director uh, at Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church, and I'm here with Evan McClanahan, the Senior Pastor at First Lutheran in Midtown. And uh, welcome to the new format of Theology on Air. Hi, welcome. Well, I I guess thanks for having me. (laughs) But I'm a host, so... We always have you. (laughs) um, I'm I'm glad that I'm here. But I, I do hope that this new format will be a benefit to our listeners, and maybe it because we're presenting things topically and in chunks, they might be inspired to share it with other people. Like, hey, here's one nifty place where you can get a summary on this topic or these, yeah. these people or something like, like that. Like a giant so, history lesson. So hint, hint, feel free to share, you know, uh, the podcast and, yeah. you know, that, like that us, sort of thing. Give us good reviews, all the things. I mean, we're trying not to just rant and rave about things, but we're trying to offer more substance and, and depth, um, which does, by the way, take a fair amount more time. Yeah, research. research. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read several books for for this and done more writing than than usual. So, um, so you don't have to just listen to Evan's rants, is what we're right. saying here. Yeah, and I, and and I've <laughs> done it all for you, the listener. I've done it all for you, out of my my deep the abiding love for you. And actually, as I was thinking about this, though, because we we homeschool our kids now, 
I was like, they're going to hate me for this, but you're going to make them listen. They're going to listen. Like, yeah. because I'm going, you know, this is like three to 500 years ish, you know, of really substantive historical material yeah. that shaped the world as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because it's not just about these personalities, but, you know, all the ideas and all the, you know, Game of Thrones-esque <laughs> without the incest, uh, you know, like <laughs> politics behind a lot of this stuff. A no, lot of, I'm, lot of I'm power I'm glad plays. for it. I might make my kids listen to it too, or at least the one that's still at home. But I'm glad for it because there's a lot about this kind of stuff that I don't know. So when people say like, oh, well, so-and-so used to stone people for thinking blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, I don't know if that's true or not. So now I'm going to know. Right. And I can speak. Yeah. You know, for example, today we're going to learn what investiture is. Ah, uh, so investiture. You've always That's like Bitcoin that. and silver, and you're it, supposed to diversify your commodity. A little bit. It's a little bit like that, yeah. Um, well, are we ready to jump in? Yeah, jump in. Tell okay. us about some things. Well, I want to make a few distinctions first. One is okay. between, for example, reform and revolution. Uh, hmm. You know, there is a difference between the two, and I would argue that within the pages of the New Testament, you see that Christians are to work for reform, or at least they can. And but we're not really to be revolutionaries. So you see, for example, a lot of texts uh, that will speak about Christians living peaceably in their current context, obeying the law, mm-hmm. you know, basically being good citizens. Uh, you know, we're to be leaven in a culture, not dynamite, mm-hmm. right? So this does speak to, I think, even to this very day and absolutely at the time of the Reformation, different theories as to how the church is to respond to certain political situations Mm -hmm. or maybe issues of justice or injustice. Just this morning, I was listening to a book uh, called uh, Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators. Uh, I'd actually highly recommend it. It was written in the early 80s, and it's about sort of Christian views of economics. Um, But one of the interesting pieces of that is that it looks at the Anabaptist Revolution, which we'll get to later in the series, and how the earliest, most extreme Anabaptist revolutions were actually socialistic in nature. Hmm. And they gave up on, you know, marriage, essentially, you know, husbands and wives. They they believed in the communal ownership of property. It was revolutionary. And yeah. it got it got very violent. And, and a lot of people hmm. um, died as a result. Christians, I believe, I think you can read in the scriptures that they're going to find themselves in in a variety of situations, in a variety of governments, some more just than others. And so then it's a question of, well, how do you go about identifying injustices within and without the church, and then how do you go about working you know, for those things? And I think reform is the concept we want to embrace. Yeah. Um, so when Christians want to adopt revolutionary policies you know, in our own day regarding issues maybe of race, of gender, of, of economic distribution of wealth, et cetera, et cetera, I think they're wrong. Hmm. I, I don't think that is justifiable in the Bible. I don't think that you see that in Christ or the the writings of, of Paul. But that said, um, and I guess people might say, well, what about the American Revolution? And yeah. I would actually argue that that in some ways, I mean, I'm not going to be so naive as to call it a reform movement. Yeah. Uh, uh, but in many ways, I think it could be argued that the, the, the arguments uh, at the time of the revolution were about reforming the way... Britain did things. And hmm. as we'll see in this whole study, you know, there are a lot of things that England did through the years that were indefensible and and flat out wrong. So that gets into maybe some other issues. But I would just say, generally speaking, that, Christ, you know, Christians, 
it, when they work for more justice, when they work for the truth, they, they do so often slowly as leaven, um, as salt, you know, through, through the society, through this concept of reform. That's a good distinction. I like that. One of the things I think we have to struggle with is that we hope that we can avoid reform. So I think if you look at the personal level, this is the issue of repentance, right? So I would argue that— This is all about the R's today. Repent, reform. Say repent is what goes on within ourselves, and reform is what goes on or needs to go on within society. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, mean, Martin Luther, the first of the 95 Theses, October 31st, kicked this whole thing off, was, you know, when Jesus Christ says to repent, he means that the daily life of the Christian is to be one of repentance. Mm -hmm. So, you know— so within ourselves, we need to repent, and yet we can often believe that, you know, we can build institutions that don't need it. So, for example, are there some institutions that are in need of reform right now that we essentially uh, put off or we don't want to believe it to be the case? And I would, I'll give you a few examples yeah. of things that I think would definitely fall into that category. Okay. For example, the United States military. The United States military, arguably, for 250 years has been a hallmark of order, of efficiency, of victory, you know, of yeah. all things positive, you know. And yet, I think a lot of people are looking at the military today and they're saying, wow, it's actually been, there are actually influences within the military that are foreign to it. You know, we're not as interested in winning wars as much as winning hearts and minds or, hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of waste, you know, in, in the budget mm-hmm. and things like that. I mean, just practically, there's there's definitely, I would say, need for reform in the military. Or I'll step on some toes here. What about Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, those were the gold standard of like youth activities for, what, 100 years mm-hmm. in our country? And now girls can join the Boy Scouts and boys can join. I mean, you thought you weren't going to get any Evan Rants, but yeah, here there we you go. go. So there is no avoiding reform. That, that's what I would say. Okay. Like, that if you are a Christian, your daily life is essentially one of reform. Like, yeah. You can't get complacent. Uh, complacency itself will lead to sin. There will always be forces within ourselves and within institutions that are going to lead to sin creeping in and the need for reform. Well, sure. This is part of the Christian idea that the world is broken. Absolutely. Right? Everything is touched by sin and brokenness. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. Now, I think that might sound a little exhausting, and I think we hope that isn't the case, though. I think we live in denial of that. So you and I would say, well, that's just part and parcel of being a Christian, to which I, of course, agree. But I think one of the things we have to deal with is that we we actually live in denial of that reality, and that we hope that either ourselves or our institutions will just kind of carry on forever, like in perpetuity, perfectly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so all that said, um, the reformers— this group of people we're going to be talking about, they were dealing with an institution that certainly either, I don't know if they believed their own press, but they, mm-hmm. it was, it, just to even get to the point where they would could talk about like doctrines to reform, you had a lot of institutional sort of foundation that had to be laid. Like like you had to actually talk about the institution and how, how corrupt the, actually, the institution was. Okay. The problem was that the church defined for itself, you know, what was good or bad about itself, right? So it was very difficult to even get it to acknowledge that it needed to reform because it was the one that, it was the institution that wrote all the rules, right? There's a tautology there, yeah. Exactly. 
Um, so I would argue that the medieval Western church, which is the background of everything we're going to be talking about, had created for itself a brilliant edifice that had made essentially reform impossible. Hmm. And I would go so far as to say that the Roman Catholic Church of today is also impossible to reform. Um, and that is because the medieval church and the modern Roman Catholic Church both put themselves in a position to be the arbiter of scripture and tradition and canon law. Hmm. It had a pope that had become more powerful than kings. Uh, it had a populace that was thoroughly ignorant of the Bible, yeah. except maybe for the biggest you know, Bible stories, but the Bible was not in their language, yeah. and that was one of the major things. That's what Wycliffe is known for more than anything else, was translating the Bible into English. Um, I mean, I would if, if I'm going to lay down a controversial claim, it would be that it is debatable whether Europe or what we call the West was even Christian at all hmm. in the sense that we understand Christianity. Jeez. I mean, those are some shots fired. Well, we call it Christendom. Yeah. And certainly you had, I don't know, King John, you know, whoever, or King Henry, whoever, they were Christian. They had a relationship to the Western church, but did the people even know what they believed? I mean, yeah. I'm not judging their hearts. I'm not condemning them to, you know, hell or anything. I'm just <laughs> saying that as we understand Christianity, you know, there were centuries where the ignorance was so profound hmm. that it's hard to even say that there was a baseline minimal knowledge mm -hmm. of what Christianity mm -hmm. was. And the Catholic Church at the time um, wanted it that way. I mean, they were so hostile to, say, the translation of the Bible into the vernacular. Yeah. I mean, even in reading this, I was surprised at how what horrible things they had to say about people who would dare to translate the Bible, what horrible things they have to say about Wycliffe's um, preachers that he would send out. They're called the Lollards. So the what? The Lollards. Okay. It's like Spell a, that. L-O-L-L-A-R-D. Okay. Yes. And so that's a Dutch word that means mumbler. And so huh. they were, it was a pejorative, kind of like yeah. Christian was a pejorative, but then they took it on as a, you know, as a, as a badge of honor. A badge of honor. Yeah. So, but the Lollards were itinerant preachers who took vows of poverty and went out and preached the gospel. And hmm. these were kind of students of Wycliffe and he inspired them. And these people were hated by the church. What was the church's problem with things being translated? Was it the loss of control? Because if people know what the Bible says, then they can't be the ones telling them what it says and also telling them. I don't know, what they should do with their money and these kinds of things? I, I think, yes. It was basically a total power play. It was like, we're going to dictate the terms. I mean, there was an arrogance there, too, like, well, these people are too stupid to know. Right. You know, so uh, there there was, uh, you know, basically it was like, well, we can't let these people find out what's in the book kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be that extreme. And I think but. that is kind of when you hear people today even saying they have a problem with organized religion. That's what they have to take issue with. And so there's validity there. It's like, yeah, when it was like this, that was a real problem. Right. I don't Hence think we, reform. We, we have no appreciation. I mean, hmm. virtually no appreciation of living in a post-Reformation world. Hmm. Interesting. It is, it is a totally different world. Yeah. I mean, 108. I mean, it, it's, it's unimaginable what, it would have, what daily life would have been like pre-Reformation. Give us a year. Like the year is what? the year is eleven seventy three, okay. and you are a peasant. And you're, <laughs> wow, you're, thanks. Yeah, sorry. So, well, I mean, right away. I mean, arguably, uh, 
the the nation state system that would come after the the peace of Westphalia in 1648. So that's the end of the Thirty Years' War. That was a war between Catholics and Protestants. That was the basically the the the. I mean, that is where all this is going to lead, right? Like, but, I mean, you, as we'll see in this in these first couple of episodes, the church and state dynamic was mm. just full of tension, Volatile. and it was constant yeah. power plays. And what Christianity even meant to these kings is highly debatable. Yeah. But, um, but essentially, you know, the Reformation spreads from, say, we'll just say 1517 to, you know, 1546, the Council of Trent. You've got German and you've got Lutheran and, I guess, Calvinist sort of portions of Europe. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, they don't want to give that up. So there are these horrible wars through the Holy Roman Empire, I mean, mostly Germany, I think you would say, you know, from 1618 to 1648, and Europe is basically decimated, you know, you lose massive amounts of population, massive amounts mm. of farmland, um, huge amounts of death, and for what? For what? For Catholic and Protestant? We can't even imagine fighting yeah, that war, right? And, and, and as secularism in our age becomes more and more the norm, we actually find ourselves huddling with, you know, traditional Roman Catholics because we mm -hmm. still agree on basic principles. But those other issues were never resolved. Hmm. So so it's not just about theology. There's a lot of power plays involved. But so, 1173, you're a peasant, you know. And the reason you're not a peasant now, the reason we enjoy our middle-class existence, arguably, is the rise of the individual conscience and the protection of that conscience, the mm -hmm. rise of independent nation-states, the rise of democracy, what we would later call democracy, um, the rise of a people being able to say to a government, um, hey, you know, actually I have I have sovereignty in and of myself. Like yeah. you're not the only you're not the only people here with sovereignty, you know. Um, you know, so the American Revolution, you know, is is a it's the fruit of these hundreds of years of these ideas kind yeah, of coming brewing. to fruition where people are actually saying, hey, you know, we have roads. Now, there are a number of peasants' revolts, you know, in Wycliffe's mm -hmm. day, in Luther's day, and they were nasty, yeah. you know, and actually Luther is against the peasants and he's for the slaughter of peasants and that's a whole we'll other get to that in another we'll get episode. to that in another episode yeah but um but but going back to 1173 where i'm a peasant and not a right. princess because that's the example we're living in yeah what do i know about the bible or jesus or god i couldn't say for sure but i would think it would be very little you like, don't am i going you, you, to you mass am i like what you're you're probably going to mass but but for example wickliffe was known for being one of the first. I mean, I'm sure he wasn't the first. I'm just. I mean, there were. I'm sure there are a lot of faithful Catholic priests out in the hinterlands that were fantastic preachers and loved the Bible and wanted their people to know about the Bible. Yeah. But by and large, the the relationship people had to the church was sacramental. Okay. Very little preaching was ever done. Um, when you say sacramental, you mean like communion, baptism, right. these kinds of things. Your baptism and your citizenship were one and the same. Okay. They, 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 the, Re the Reformation broke that apart. Hmm. Talk about a difference, right? Yeah. So Reformation broke apart your citizenship to your baptism. That was the whole Anabaptist controversy, ultimately, was that when the Anabaptists, which means new baptism, when they were baptized as believers yeah. or disciples at the age of, say, 20, yeah. not seven, <clears throat> to all yeah. my Southern Baptist friends, um, <laughs> but when they were full adults and they knew what they were doing and they had been catechized and they got baptized again— that was a was an insult to the state because it said my citizenship is no longer valid. Oh yeah, yeah. So all this stuff had was broken apart. 
you know, so, so I think that they would have shown up, they would have partaken in the mass, by the way, probably only the bread. Oh yeah. Major issue with Jan Hus, major issue. One of his major issue. Anyway. That's a guy we're going to talk about right. later. Yeah. So, and it would have been rote participation at best and very little emphasis on preaching. In fact, just yesterday I was watching Bishop Barron's interview with Shia LaBeouf. Okay. Uh, Shia LaBeouf, as you may have heard, is a new convert to Catholicism. So he says, I have thoughts about that. And I have <laughs> Evan thoughts, has thoughts about I have thoughts about Bishop Barron's <laughs> approach to this whole thing as well. But mm-hmm. saving that for another day. But it was interesting, I will give him credit for this, that he said mm-hmm. for decades Catholic um preaching in America, like mm-hmm. contemporarily right now, has been about ditties. It's been about self not not he wouldn't say self-help but it was about personal life stories you know stuff like that and then a little bit of bible at the end and even okay so stories a little entertainment a little right, light yeah right i mean it's what most of us grew up on frankly and huh. even in well Protestant my dad's circles. a pastor and a really good one and so really well but... pres- the presbyterian stuck to the bible right because the calvinist tradition thank you oh. john calvin we'll get to that right. in another episode but yeah. but but even even in this but i think that the preaching in the middle middle ages is probably a lot like the bad modern preaching uh, we've heard. Interesting. Not biblical, anecdotal. Yeah. They would tell the stories of the lives of saints. That was a huge thing, right? Like most sermons would probably be like, well, there was a saint in 300 and she did. She was so faithful and she had a miraculous gift of bread and fed the whole town and blah, blah, blah. Or she floated off into heaven. And, you know, <laughs> by the way, Sheila LaBeouf is making a movie about a saint who lived with a stigmata, supposedly, yeah. for years and was able to fly. Okay. Relocation. Yeah, duo location. But I'm this makes me eyes. think of uh, the the preaching that you're describing makes me think of shows and movies like Midnight Mass. On, I'm sure you did not watch on Netflix. I absolutely watched it. You did? Yes. <laughs> Six episodes. Should have been four, but go ahead. Anyway. Too many long soliloquies. I but, started fast But that kind of sermonizing where there's very little Bible, it's a right. lot of story, a lot of yes. heart. Oh uh, yes, stuff. But yeah, if, if, if Hollywood ever writes a good sermon, I'll be shocked. But I mean, I granted they have time constraints. But the point is that you know, exposing the Bible, exposition of the Bible, yeah. non-existent. Okay. So I would say little familiarity, rote participation is sufficient. And it's I'm illiterate, of, so I can't just read the Bible for myself. And you, yeah, right. I mean, okay. there was no printing press, so you know, the only Bibles were handwritten. So very few people had any at all. Mm. They were, you know, mm. they were they were to the, to be fair, they were treasured, you know, and it all would have been in Latin. Yeah. You know, until. Uh, John, John, uh, John Wycliffe writes it in English until Hus puts it in Bohemian. I believe he translated it into Bohemian. I, th- I think that's fair. Certainly Luther and others, they were, had teams of people, but, you know, translated into German. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right. Sorry. I just wanted to kind of Absolutely. paint the picture of what was happening that someone like John Wycliffe would need to, well, reform. And, and, and there was tremendous amounts with, with that amount of power. There was tremendous amounts of corruption. Yeah. I mean, it reaches a zenith. With the indulgence controversy in Luther's day. Say what indulgences are for those who are listening. So an indulgence is essentially buying a blessing from the church, uh, you know, piece of paper with a papal seal on it. And with that, you can buy years out of purgatory. So purgatory is the, the Catholic belief that you know, when you die, you go to this place, limbo. It's a holding the, cell. Well, there's purgatory so, and limbo. They're two different places. Oh, they are? Yeah, one's worse than the other. Oh, okay. That's maybe a conversation for another day. But it's where you go to be purged of your sins. Or to and, continue being sanctified. or Yeah. Yeah. 
because you can't be in the presence of Christ until you're pure, and so you die in your sin. Now, I suppose it's possible if you have commission or extreme unction, which is also called I last, don't know any of these words. Last rites. Oh, you know, okay. last rites. Extreme unction is last rites. It's the seventh sacrament in the Catholic system. I, I, I think it's possible that maybe if you go to confession and you do confess all of your sins, then— And, and you're you, struck dead somehow, right after that. Yeah. Something, before you have a bad thought. Right. So I think there's some way you might be able to avoid purgatory. But generally speaking, most of us have and to And we go have there. great news for you because we think you can all avoid purgatory. Right. Anyway, continue. You live in a post-Reformation yeah. world. So yeah, yeah. you, as a Protestant, are not saddled with purgatory. We actually believed in the finished work of the cross and the, and the perfect, you know, perfection that comes with his sanctification. But, but back to indulgences. It's a way that people could pay to help their loved ones get out of purgatory faster. Well, in Luther's day— what the scandal for Luther was that that particular indulgence was actually worse than most other indulgences because you paid for other people, right? But I believe that most indulgences were only for yourself or for oh, past it's like an sins. early investment. Yes, on your post-death life. Well, and I think some dealt with your previous sins, and but in Luther's ah. day, it got so horrible that they dealt with future sins. So there's the old—I have no idea if this is true—but there's this legend of a guy buying an indulgence from a priest. When the deed was done, he beat the priest up for <gasps> his, you know, his unfaithfulness. And he said, don't worry, the indulgence I just bought was was for that act. Ooh! Right. Okay. So because it was for future sins. Right. Jeez. That was the idea. Now, again, that's now probably a legend. for a good movie. Yes, absolutely. So, but, but indulgences were around in the time of Wycliffe. And yeah. I do think that people were seeing obvious corruption. And when yeah. we talk about Wycliffe, his, his main, his, one of his main beefs is going to be the wealth of the church. And, mm. you know, even within monasteries, there is just tremendous amounts of wealth. And, Interesting. you know, even though they take vows of poverty. So how can that be? Right. Yeah. I'm so, glad we don't have that today. Right. Now, I will say by the time of the um, – right, yeah, right. Um, uh, by the time of the, say, 14th century, Wycliffe's century, you already – you know, time the time for reform had been long since in the making. And to the Catholic Church's credit, the council, the, the Fourth Lateran Council – the Lateran is just a palace in Rome. So okay. it says Lateran Council. It just means they, That's where it was. they had it there, um, whereas the Vatican councils were – there are two of them and blah, blah, blah. So the Fourth Lateran Council was in 1215. By the way, something else important in world history happened in 1215. Do not quiz me live on air. Okay. I won't do that then. <laughs> um, and we're not live. It's recording. But anyway, the, mag the Magna Carta. Ah, okay. Right? And now what's interesting about that is I never put these things together. But the Pope at the time, Pope Innocent III, he annulled the Magna Carta. Like, we think of the Magna Carta as this thing that the barons of England, the nobility mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. England, they go to the king, right? And they're like, we have sovereign rights. And it's arguably the beginning of, of, of kind of the West, in yeah. a sense, of like people claiming rights over their government. And the king at the time, King John. Everyone uh, is John in this uh, Lots of Johns, yeah. yeah and he was, the, he was the fourth son of Eleanor of Aquitaine. So if you've ever heard of the movie The Lion in Winter. Uh, I have not. Um, one of the, th the third son was Richard III, the Lionhearted. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of okay. So he's in that family. Yeah. I think it was Henry II's son. Anyway, but so this king, he agrees with the barons of England that, yeah, you guys have some rights, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we're going to change this whole way we do things, right? And that's the Magna Carta. Um, but the Pope is like, eh. Now you might be saying, well, what business does the Pope have, uh, with this whole, like, what say does he have? Mm 
Well, actually, in 1213, this is a good example of the massive power plays that we cannot even imagine, right? Mm. In 1213, the uh, King John, the same king, was excommunicated by the Pope Mm. because he wanted to install his own Archbishop of Canterbury. That is, they each wanted to install the Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay. Right. And so the king had his guy, the pope had his guy. Yeah. And it's like who gets to do it? Whoever gets in is going to have influence. It's going to it's going to deal with the the how much money goes from sure. England to Rome. I mean, it's it's all very complicated. And so they had this standoff. So the pope has the ultimate power. The pope's like, "You're out. You're excommunicated." Jeez. So now if the only recourse to salvation is the church, Mm-hmm. which is a major foundational issue of this whole thing. Obviously. If that's the only recourse, the king is going, hmm, how important is this whole Archbishop of Canterbury thing? You know, yeah, yeah. because like if my salvation's on the line and I've got no alternative, you live in a world of alternatives. Yeah. You know, like I live in a world of alter- alternatives. Yep. You know, some of them are not good alternatives, but we right. would say through Christ, not the papacy but through christ you can receive salvation and forgiveness mm-hmm. right they didn't live in that world yeah that's crazy so so um anyway so to get to get his excommunication off his back he gives england to the pope gives england to the pope okay. he gives england to the pope and england itself becomes a vassal state Jeez. Right, they're like the Vichy French in World War II, right? Like, yeah, they can still have their cafes and their French bread <laughs> and, you know, their their cigarettes or whatever, but the Nazis actually occupy France wow. know, for three or four years. Yeah. And it's a puppet government. Yeah. And that's what England became. In fact, there is a theory, <clears throat> a conspiracy theory that I do not believe, but there <laughs> is a conspiracy theory that the Treaty of 1213 indicates that the Pope still owns England. Hmm. Yeah, and it's still it's still control. That is still the machinations of the world. Still go back to that treaty, but it's, uh, it's, it's all this. You can see how all this kind of comes to a fore. Now, at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, that there, there was calls for reform because the church had already gotten very corrupt. That also was the council where transubstantiation is made dogma. Okay, so tell us what that is. Transubstantiation is the Roman Catholic dogma. Remember, there's a difference between dogma and doctrine. Doctrines are things that the church believes. But they could change later. For example, uh, priestly celibacy is a doctrine of the church, but mm-hmm. it could it could change in theory. Okay. A dogma cannot change. A dogma, once it's decreed, the church can never go back. Give an example of a dogma if you can think well, of something. Let's talk about transubstantiation. Oh, there okay. be certain yeah. there are ser- there are several Marian dogmas. For example, the Marian dogma of the bodily assumption of Mary, which teaches that Mary did not die, but was bodily assumed into heaven, like hmm. Elijah, for example. Yeah, yeah. And Enoch. Um, yeah. Um, there is um, the, the Marian dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Yeah. Which is not about the conception right, of, of Jesus, Jesus but, but the about conception Mary of Mary. herself as a yeah. baby. Yeah. Um, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Poor Mary. You know? Well, yeah. and actually, that's actually... I would argue really weird because it actually deals with the birth of Jesus not going through right. the vaginal right, right, right. canal. He just not, sort of yeah. Oh, yeah. from the uterus to right. the outside world. And that's but, dogma. Yeah. That's dogma. You gotta believe that. Right. Well, so, I don't have to believe that. I'm not yeah, that. Yeah, right, right. But, yeah. but transubstantiation is is the argument that was uh it was really unknown in the church until I think the earliest is the late tenth century. Huh. Okay, when this starts to get promulgated. And I believe I can say with accuracy that Aquinas 
you know, puts his Aristotelian philosophy to work and he really kind of like puts, you know, brings the whole thing together and these categories of properties mm-hmm. that change the way that the the Eucharist was understood. Eucharist is like communion. Right, communion. And that's a perfectly good word for it, by the way. We should we should reclaim that. But it, it's a Greek word, just means Thanksgiving. But um, so the the basic idea of transubstantiation is that when the priest acting in the stead of Christ, you live in a post you yeah, live in yeah, a post yeah. Reformation that's not the world, world I live in. But yeah. but yeah. Uh, when he says the words of institution, the elements are consecrated and the bread becomes the body of Christ. Meaning the bread becomes actual human flesh. Yes. Okay. And the and the wine. Becomes, I wish you guys could see Evan's face right now. It sort of has a like a dubious. I mean, look I on I it. don't think they would say, "Well, this is you know, this is I got his liver today, and I got his kidney next week." But it become it. But but like it, molecularly, they think there's a change. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. And and a lot of there are actually a lot of Eucharistic miracles or the the adoration of mm. the Eucharistic host and like a big monstrance or like when they parade, you've seen the Godfather when they're parading through the town, you know, with the Eucharist. I have. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, this is still common practice, you know, mm. because the idea is that once consecrated, it only has the keyword here, accidental property of being bread. Okay. But the substantial property is that mm. it is Christ. So it is the body of Christ and it is only the body of Christ. And to the person who says, well, wait a minute, it still looks like bread, yeah. feels like bread, tastes like bread. Aha, but those are only its accidental properties. Interesting. This is yeah. pretty philosophical stuff. Yeah. So, and and therefore... I'm going to tell people that about my cooking next time they don't like something. Right. That's just its accidental properties. Right, right. Actually, this is, is a five-star Michelin, uh, yeah. Michelin restaurant meal. I don't I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> Continue, um, sorry. I mean, not, not to mock it, because Lutherans, you know, we do hold that Christ is present in with and under the bread and the wine. So we we have held to bodily presence, but really in a way that we re- kind of refuse to define. We, we've de- we've but been, we we've, are going to try to pin him down on that when we talk about Lutherans in yeah. a subsequent episode. So, But either way, transubstantiation is that the, the bread turns into, in some real right. way, body, and body the, and the wine turns into right. blood. And it, and it could be that the wine was withheld from the people for hundreds of years precisely because it was so easy to spill and you don't want the blood of Christ going into your carpet. And I would argue some of these are modern issues we have to deal Hmm. with as well. It explains the use of wafers, for example. Um, You know, you don't want crumbs and, you know, it it gets kind of, yeah. How you handle these things sort of is, you know, our church has a special sink. Every Catholic church has a special sink called a piscina, which, which, which is a drain directly from the sink to the ground. So the the elements go into the ground. The unused, blessed, consecrated elements go directly into the ground. They're not mm. just, they're not just thrown in, in the trash or whatever. Yeah, you wouldn't put them in the same, the same sewage as <clears throat> the toilet, right? Yeah. You wouldn't do that to those elements. Okay, well, so Lutherans and Catholics wouldn't. Twelve fifteen, Fourth Lateran Council. Transubstantiation becomes dogma. Um, by then, it is obvious that you do need a lot of uh, reforms, um, and. What I would what I would argue is that those efforts really didn't go anywhere. I mean, it, you know, you still had it was it was like t- t- you know turning an aircraft carrier around. Mm-hmm. Right, it happens very very slowly. The problem for the church, I would argue, is that the reformers what they clearly demonstrate when they when they you know they show up to these debates and they're so naive. They show up to debates with like their Bible. Oh. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, dude, wrong, 
A, you can't win. B. But it's the sword. Let me stop. Continue. Yeah. And and B, um, you're arguing with the, the church that gets to define all the issues. Yeah. So it's basically circular reasoning. Yeah. That's what they're up against. So what the re- we live in a post-Reformation world where a few brave people, often through violence and, you know, bad history that we may not like, but they got out of that circle, hmm. you know? But at, at for the first 200 years of these Reformation efforts, the circle is strong, if you will. Um, so as an example, Huss, or Huss, Jan Huss, he's going to teach against papal infallibility. For that, the church rightly says he's a heretic, because hmm. the church had already said, hey, the pope gets the final say. But on what basis... Do they call him a heretic? Well, they say he has mistranslated the scriptures or misinterpreted the scriptures. Well, by whose standard? Right. The church's standard. You just go round and round. And who heads the church? The Pope. So we're back to papal. Yeah. yeah. So you the church was unreformable, right? And mm. to this day, I would argue it is, has proven to be unreformable. It is still unreformable. It is mm. literally unreformable. Um so the problem for Wycliffe and Huss and Luther was that there was no external standard that they could point to to reform the church. The scripture had That's already kind of scary. It is scary. It's it's quite scary. It's like we talk about like the deep state, you know, the thing yeah. that actually operates the world, or even some of the conspiracy theories we talked about were that, well, yeah, we think we vote and we think our vote matters and we think we have elected representatives, but actually the Rothschilds own run sure, everything either. or whatever, right? That's kind of what was th- – these people lived in a world in which they were – That was really actually happening. Yeah. yeah. They, they were just truly automatons. They were like non-playing characters in a video game, right? Mm-hmm. Like they, they – you can't actually interact with them. They have no, they have no agency. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a very different world. Um, I would argue, and I think this is beyond question, that the scripture had already become subservient to capital T tradition. Okay? Mm-hmm. And still to this day, the Catholic Church will say, well, they're scripture and tradition. Right. They're equal authorities. Yeah. But the fact is that if the tradition, and I'm going to steal from James White, because he said this in many of his debates with Roman Catholics and teachings, and I think he's right about this, you have, in in the Roman Catholic Church, they don't have solo scriptura, they have solo ecclesia. Hmm. The church alone. Yeah. Is actually, because it gets to determine what scripture says. And it gets to determine what is part of the tradition. So yeah. a church father says something good about transubstantiation, tradition. Yeah. <laughs> a church father says something bad about it. Oh, well, that's just some guy popping off. Right, right, right. Right. It's convenient. So, um, and I would argue that it is the tradition that gave rise to many of the dogmas that we already mentioned, mm-hmm. right, that have very little scriptural support. Right. I mean, the arguments for purgatory are just wafer thin. Part, pardon the <laughs> Much pun. like the uh, bread that you'll yeah. get at Evans Church. Yeah. So, okay. So I would argue there are many teachings that had, you know, essentially become impossible to ignore. The Reformation was an attempt to fight through this self-contained circular curia and papacy that had killed heretics, mm-hmm. um, you know, to recognize that, right? Um, the the work of the Reformation is to bring the church back to the scriptures. It's It's really kind of nothing more and nothing less than that. And I would argue, as I've said, it failed. Okay, the Reformation failed. It didn't work. The, the Roman Catholic Church, if, if it is the if it is the continuous church from the say twelve fifteen or wh- whenever you want to say the medieval church really became what it was, um, and James White, who's really a, an expert in these matters, I would argue, he says twelve fifteen, the Fourth Lateran Council, is when the Roman Catholic Church became the Roman Catholic Church as mm-hmm. we know it today because it 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 put in place the doctrine of the priest and transubstantiation yeah. and these sorts of the mass became the thing that was all definitional. 
and participation in the Mass is sufficient for a Catholic. And the okay. Reformers spent hundreds of years saying, what about the Word of God? What about the Word of God? What about the Word of God? Yeah. You know? And so, I mean, I'm, I'm sure my Roman Catholic friends would say we're simplifying and oversimplifying. It is what it is. And but, they can come on and talk on the sure, podcast. Sure, sure. Well, we are going to do one, you know, about the Council of Trent, which is yeah. the Counter-Reformation. So, um, okay. So of all... Uh, or on the view, rather, of all the Protestant churches, Lutheran, Reformed, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, sounds like our TOT leadership team, yeah. right? Um, I would argue that the Roman Catholic Church, we believe, the Orthodox among us believe that the Roman Catholic Church remains a circular institution that therefore still cannot be reformed. Hmm. Um, and so there are dogmas that if they were reformed, if you tried to take back some of these dogmas, they would undercut the foundation of the church to be right then it wouldn't be the catholic church it wouldn't be the catholic church anymore exactly um so it's already locked in that's what the reformers are dealing with um and so what i want to do now that's kind of what the reformers were up against yeah but i want to and uh, by the way i do want to say in all seriousness that i do believe roman catholics can be christians yeah okay i believe that roman catholic people persons mm -hmm. follower can be followers of christ yeah Agreed. But I will be somewhat controversial and say that I believe that to be a follower of Christ, they actually need to be so in spite of some of the Roman Catholic dogmas yeah. that in theory they're supposed to hold if they're Roman Catholic. I don't think that's nearly as controversial as you think it okay. is. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but I do want to put that that out there. I'm not condemning them anywhere. Um, but without rehearsing 1,300 years of history, how did we get to the point where some men were able to separate from the crowd enough to be heard? Okay. What were the corruptions that were so blatant and obvious? I mean, it wasn't like Wycliffe was the only person or Huss was the only person or yeah. Luther was the only person. There are lots of people who recognize the corruptions. How did it get so bad? Uh, what were some of the most important issues? You know, I'm going to say five most important historical issues from okay. Jesus to, you know, 1350. Okay. Um, that kind of got us to that point. So as a as a precede of those, 313, that's the... Um, Edict of Milan. Okay. That's when Constantine, mm -hmm. controversial Roman emperor, um, controversial because it's argued whether he was Christian or not on his deathbed, and th he died in 325. But 313, you have the Edict of Milan. That makes Christianity legal. Yeah. So the persecuted church can breathe a, a bit of a sigh of relief. Exactly. And yeah. it was persecuted in fits and starts. It, like, yeah. it wasn't totally persecuted everywhere, but they couldn't be persecuted anymore because like the pagans, they are now legal. Okay. That sets the stage for three. 380 or 381, um, and this is when Christianity becomes the state religion. So now it's not one of the legal religions. Mm -hmm. It is the legal religion, and now paganism is what is outlawed. And so now— So many interesting thoughts there that I'll leave alone for yeah. now. But yeah. we So Christians, I say we, Christians went from being killed by pagans to killing pagans. Yikes. Yeah. So that's just something we have to deal with. Um, now, I say it could be 380 because this is perhaps when the Emperor Theodosius of Rome, Emperor of Rome at the time, when he actually probably signed this. But it's regarded as 381. And I'm going to read now from a website which has an, a wonderful summary. I don't have to do all this research myself. <laughs> I'm going to read uh, what it says. This is from Landmark Events as a, as a website. I think it's a good summary. Early in his reign, Theodosius contracted an illness that almost carried him off. These are British people, so they. <laughs> well, say, can you do it in a British accent? I, I carried him off. I can't. I can't. But yeah, yeah. They, there are some euphemisms that are funny. <laughs> uh, he subsequently underwent Christian baptism and declared himself a Christian of the Nicene Creed. 
not since Constantine had the empire seen a serious Christian emperor. Not only tax cheats fell under his sometimes deadly gaze, but also heretics and pagans. This little-known Christian emperor would change the church in two ways. First, he called a church council at Constantinople and put an official end to the heresy of Arianism, codifying the Nicene Creed as we know it today, thus officially enforcing Orthodox Christianity on the empire. I will say Arianism, the, the mm-hmm. basic heresy that Jesus is created. He's not the creator, right. okay? Modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses would be like modern-day Arians. But this was like Athanasius went to war with the Arians, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it took decades to sort out. But this is kind of the nail in the coffin for Arianism. Yeah. So it's finally expunged. Secondly, he used his power under that of the church, which set a standard with periodic challenge lasting more than a thousand years. He closed pagan temples and forbade pagan worship. Uh, The dominant heresies of the day were driven underground throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, And his death brought an end to, by the way, military alliances that had kept Europe or the empire from falling into chaos. I mean, most people understand the Roman Empire goes back to several hundred years before Christ Mm -hmm. and several hundred years after Christ. Uh, But this is the end. Like, this is sort of toward the end of the Roman Empire. It's sort of collapsing on the edges, and it's Mm -hmm. held together by these military alliances, but they are um, fragile at at the hands of this emperor. But that said, you have this, you know, this thousand-year power that he put under the church. So that's going to set the stage for everything we're going to talk about, is Mm. is, is, is really this idea that that the church becomes more powerful than the state. Um, and maybe he thought he was doing that for good reasons, yeah. like because he was a faithful Christian. There are people he, right now that wish for that. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Um, so as it should be obvious that this would have been like unimaginable to, like say, Peter and Paul. You know, yeah. who are out there laboring in the vineyard, uh, yeah. you know, in a persecuted empire, you know, extreme minority voice, and now they're the power of the whole world. Like that, literally the most you know, powerful empire in the world is now doing their bidding, if you will, evangelizing for them. Right. But again, just like I said earlier, like, were they really Christian? Yeah. Right? Like, what does that mean? Like, when you basically say, we're going to kill you if you're not Christian. Right. So all of what we consider the West becomes Christian almost overnight. Christian with quotes around it. Yeah. Right. So that's something we have to, I think, kind of grapple with. Okay. So that's number one. Okay. Christianity becomes the empire. The other ones will be faster. Uh, fall of Rome in 410 to the Visigoths. Okay, okay. so the, um, that's the, a fun word to say, Visigoth. Absolutely. The, the so the military alliance is sort of you know the, as they sort of come to an end, Rome is more vulnerable, and this could be kind of a symbolic beginning of the Dark Ages. Okay. You know the the fall of Rome, and this is in 410. So the the this is oversimplifying probably, but essentially as Roman empirical institutions falter, what is there now that is functioning? That can keep order in society. The church. The church. So it becomes, and it doesn't, ha- doesn't hurt that this emperor had willingly, it seems, given up some of his authority to the church. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether any of this is a good idea or right, biblical right. That's is... That's what we're arguing. Right. It's just history. Right. So number three, uh, this is 750. This is about the time the donation of Constantine was written. Okay. I don't know what that is. So... I'm going to read from Britannica Encyclopedia because it has a better summary than I could offer. The donation of Constantine is the best-known forgery of the Middle Ages. 
the document that purports to record the Roman Emperor Constantine the Great's bestowal of vast territory and spiritual and temporal power on Pope Sylvester I, who reigned from 314 to 335, and his successors. Okay? Based on legends that date back to the 5th century, the donation was comprised by an unknown writer in the 8th century. Okay, so I'm, we're, we're using the year 750 as an approximate date. Okay. It is a forgery. It was written in 750. It is not, I mean, it's real, but... It's it, apocryphal. Right. But it purports to be from the 4th century, mm-hmm. where Constantine, upon his conversion, gives Pope, the Pope at the time, Pope Sylvester, um, authority. Okay. That normally would have been reserved for the empire. Right. And so, therefore, in the 8th century, you have a document that's going around that says, hey, looky here, you know, this thing gives power to popes. Well, you don't think popes are going to be using that? Remember the split, which we're not even talking about, but the split with between East and West yeah. was 1054. And it was over many issues, and it had brewed also for centuries. But the main issue between East and West, was that Rome is claiming primacy. Hmm. Rome, is compl- Rome is saying we're superior among equals. Why? Because Peter was the bishop of Rome. Because Matthew 16, Jesus says, you're the rock, rock on which I built yeah. my church. So the reformers argue over and over and over that that's not what Jesus is saying. Right. Um, that the rock is the confession of Christ, or it's Christ himself, or those two are hard to break apart. Yeah. It's not Peter the man. It's not Peter the. It's not the Bishop of Rome, and then his successors, which right. is a whole other step to take. Uh, but this whole office of the keys, the ability to forgive sin and retain sin, we already talked about the the king who gave England to the Pope mm-hmm. because he was excommunicated because only, because the Pope had the office of keys, the ability to forgive and retain sin, yes. because he was the successor to the Bishop of Rome, who is the rock on which the church is built. This is so yeah. exclusive, right? Yeah. It's so exclusive to this one office. So East and West, I mean, you have four. Four, uh, there, there are five historic, uh, you know, heads of the headquarters, if you will, of the church. I don't remember them all, but certainly Rome, Antioch, Jerusalem, I believe Constantinople. Not and, Istanbul. Not Istanbul, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, modern day Istanbul, but Constantinople. And, and uh, I, I don't, I can't remember what I've said, but maybe Athens. I can't remember, but someone's screaming at their, at their speakers <laughs> right now. Anyway, the point is that there were four in the East and this one in the West. And the four in the East would speak Greek, and the one in the West would speak Latin. Well, probably because the Roman Empire falls, and the church becomes the default power of what we call the West, Mm -hmm. and Rome is at the heartbeat of it, they eventually say, hey, you know what, we're the most important, we're the most powerful. And the East is over there going, "Yeah, "Uh, you know, we have apostolic claims here too, buddy. And that has never, you know, obviously never been resolved. It came to a head when... They the the Pope excommunicated some head in the East, and he excommunicated the the Pope. And ten fifty four was when that happened. Huh. But you can imagine that from the donation of Constantine, written in seven fifty ish, right? Yeah. They're going, hey guys, look we at this, this piece, piece of paper. Yeah, yeah, we have this piece of paper. Okay. Now, how do we know it's a forgery? Well, there was an Italian priest and humanist. Uh, his name was Lorenzo Valla, and he wrote a document, a manuscript that basically proved beyond the shadow of a doubt through linguistic techniques, by the way. Oh, neat. Yeah, like basically like, uh, they would not have used this word in the 4th century. Mm-hmm, Interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, like this is a word that was only used after the 7th century. Yeah. You know, about governance and about like offices that people held. yeah. So it's really pretty interesting because, you know, 
speed. That's also, by the way, how we found the Unabomber. Exactly. You know. very, very similar you know, theory <laughs> of like, well, this guy uses words that very few yeah. people use or uses phrases in an unusual way. And so really he proves that this is a forgery. Okay. In the for, in in the 14 mid 1400s. Interestingly, that document was opposed by the church. Mm, you might be his. surprised to learn the Western Ro- Roman Church opposes this document Crazy. that says this was a forgery. But it is finally printed in 1517. The year of the 95 theses mm-hmm. that Luther posts. And That's handy. So all of these first two reformers, they're living not uh, they live under such insane times, but they're living while this donation is still believed to be true. Right. So their arguments, they're really up a hill. Right, right, right. right. And Luther, at least finally towards the end of his career, now this document is spreading and now he has access to it. And now it's like, bam, you know, it's <laughs> like, what have I been telling you people this whole time, right? Interesting. Yeah. So the the donation of Constantine, that that become that that being written, I mean, for hundreds of years. That was used by the Western Church to justify its supremacy hmm. and all of the stuff that goes on with kings and everything else. Okay, the pornocracy. Jeez. Yes, Sounds it's spicy. that's what it's called. Um, this was basically most of the 10th century when there was one family in particular, the Theophylactus family, okay. ran the papacy. This is when you have the worst examples of popes, like okay. truly scandalous and disgusting popes. Um the papal office, for example, was once sold. Okay, so there was. This is Jeez. a summary. This is from Wikipedia. This, by the way, sounds like a Bible story. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, was for it for sure. stew? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. No, it was for more. But so I'm gonna. This is from Wikipedia. Okay, so take it for what it's worth. But everything, I, all the other documents I read. This is just a good summary of what actually took place. Yeah. Okay. Pope Benedict the Ninth. He went so far as to sell the papacy to his religious godfather, Pope Gregory the Sixth. And he had the papacy for about a year. But he changed his mind. He seized the Lateran Palace, and he became pope for the third time in 1047 to 48. Jeez. He's the only guy to ever sell the papacy. But he did sell the papacy, <laughs> you know, so. And these were, these were like all of the same family. So this really undercuts, you know, the grand claims that this was some unbroken line of men, faithful to the apostolic yeah, yeah. witness and that whole deal. Um, well, and like appointed by God. Right? Isn't right. that kind of the... Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And now in the Reformation days, I would argue the papacy probably wasn't that corrupt, but it was pretty gross. When does the mafia come into play? Oh, that's a good question. Anyway, yeah, yeah. that's what that makes me think of, right? Well, You're one selling... Of the, yeah, some people think the mafia is a, a Freemason organization, but I do not. <laughs> I want to be clear. Anytime some conspiracy theory comes up, Evan has to... Say that he doesn't believe exactly. it, lest people think he's crazier. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I don't want to be thought of as any crazier. Um, but as an example, in Luther's day, the Pope at the time, Leo X, he was the first of the Medici Popes. Like okay, the Medici, I know that name. Great yeah. family, great powerful, super wealthy family. I mean, what are the odds that God called a Medici to the papacy? You know, right? <laughs> I mean, geez. If you're not um, sensing the sarcasm, yeah. let me let you know it's thick. But Leo X was a very, very corrupt guy um and he was as an example he was made cardinal at the age of 13 jeez i mean do you think that he had... i mean i have teenagers so i can tell you that's a bad idea <laughs> yeah. so you just have a lot of the, the pornocracy when you have this one family you have a lot of that sort of thing i think there were seven popes from this one family and it was you know they were all kind of young and mm-hmm. you know they had children and you know concubines and Ugh. there's a lot there's a lot of stuff going on in that at that day and that was well known 
And that 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 degrades trust in the office. And so I think mm-hmm. you've got more widespread kind of people going, come on. And that's why you have calls for reform. It's also why you have awesome HBO shows about the Borgias or yeah, all know. of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, last major major thing would be um, investiture. Um, you in, said we were going to learn that word. I told Here you. we go. And this deals with the what's called the Henry the Fourth humiliation. Okay. Anyway, and there's lots of Henrys because later there's yeah, yeah. going to be a Henry the Second, but that's 200 years after the Henry the Fourth. So how that happens, I don't know. So I can clearly not choose the wine in front right. of me. Okay, continue. But I'm pretty sure that one of Shakespeare. I think Shakespeare did a play about Henry the Fourth. I think it's called. I thought it was Henry the Eighth. Henry the Fourth. You're probably right. Anyway, I think Richard Branagh starred in a movie called Henry the Fourth. Okay, we talked a lot about movies today. Yeah, that's funny. Continue. Okay, this is a this is a complicated issue that I'm going to make very simple. This was a dispute about who had the greatest authority, kings and nobility or religious officials like the pope. The monarchies of the nation that we would later call the Holy Roman Empire, which is a vast swath of land with lots of kingdoms in it, they believed that they would have the right to appoint lesser church offices like bishops and abbots. To appoint such a leader was to invest in them, okay. right? Like literally, like a vestment. Right, right. right. Like you get to wear it on them. the mitre. You get to wear yeah. the blah, blah, blah. So we get to invest this particular office. Uh, and so kings would often appoint church leaders. So this all comes to a head, well, a, kind of a symbolic head. It had, again, this went on for centuries. It's been brewing, bubbling, yeah. yeah. But Henry IV is dethroned Uh-oh. and excommunicated by Pope Gregory VII in 1076. This leads now. This sound if this sounds familiar, it's because our earlier was talking about an excommunication mm-hmm. in the in the twelve thirteen. Let we, me also just clarify yes. something. When we hear the word excommunication, we think that you're sort of kicked out of the church, but it was that you were kicked out of salvation, right? Because just, salvation wanna, is only found in the church, right? Which is a foundation. Which is of why it's thing. so scary. I mean, people today are like, "So what? Kick me out of a church? I'll find another one." Yeah, it's not like that. There's three on my on yeah yeah my, you know, on your block. There's three others in my neighborhood, right? Yes, I mean it was. It's scary. I mean, again, a major issue that we live in a post-Reformation world, we take for granted. I'm going to have to start taking a drink every time you say that. I was going to ring a bell every time I said something. But but, but then an angel would get its wing. Exactly. <laughs> but the the just, just the understanding of what the church was mm-hmm. is all coming to a head here. Right? Yeah. The, the, essentially, the arguments are going to be, especially when we look at Jan Hus, so I can skip over this when we get there. But essentially his argument, his main argument is going to be that the kingdom of God and the visible church are not the same thing. Yeah. But of course, that's what exactly what the church said for centuries. That's how they had the power to excommunicate people unilaterally. So mm-hmm. when when someone comes along and says, well, actually, there's this like authority that comes from God himself. Yeah. Literally from God himself that, <laughs> you know, is bigger than the visible church. Can you imagine how grieved God was? I mean, I know he still is today at so many things, but by all of this, oh man. Anyway, continue though about this guy being excommunicated. So so what happens when he's excommunicated? This Remind us who this is again. Henry the Fourth. Henry the okay. Yeah. Henry the Fourth and Pope Gregory the Seventh. They had a major beef, right? (laughs) Okay. Henry the Fourth goes he makes a pilgrimage in a blizzard to Gregory. It's not in Rome. He's like in northern Italy or something, like in the Alps or something. Camp David. Can't remember where. There's a there's a, a Canosa. He's at Canosa. And this is called the Road to Canosa. It okay. becomes like a medieval phrase. You know, yeah. Um, and he literally sits outside the castle where the Pope is and begs for three days. Jeez. In like sackcloth, you know, and in a blizzard for three days. 
and basically says, please restore my office. Now, whether or not he was actually worried about his salvation or he wanted to get his title back, basically, is up for debate. But this becomes where at the, you know, in the power struggle between king and pope, pope wins, right? Mm. Pope wins. So this, you have the donation of Constantine, you have Theodosius, you've got it, all these sorts of things that lead to this. You've got power plays where the church is effectively more powerful than kings. Mm-hmm. And what the reformers are essentially going to have to do is not only talk about doctrines like justification. Like, honestly, the more we talk about this, the less it's even about that. Interesting. It's about it's about arguments of doctrine that the church gets wrong, mm-hmm. but the legwork you've got to do to argue for the right Mm-hmm. to argue for the doctrine, right? Right. to even get to the point where you can say, this is a debate about authority. Right. And the the church doesn't have the authority that it's claiming. Yeah. Um, and those are, those are, those are like so, those are so pr- primeval, mm-hmm. you know, or primitive or, or what, I don't know what the word is, but they're Primordial. so- Yeah, they're so presuppositional. <laughs> those, those arguments are about, like when you start talking about debates about authority, it 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 kind of comes down to it it it's it's like a it's like when um movie Gladiator when when Emperor um oh, what was his name oh my gosh um Commodus's father um I've seen the movie multiple times I don't remember but the he names. talks about Rome being like fragile like, yeah and like you just whisper it it could disappear mm. you know and when you're talking about authority that's actually what you're talking about you're talking about a social contract where everyone sort of agrees mm. on what is authoritative but it could quickly be lost you know so um it makes me think how we sort of poke fun at like when we hear about um a lot of times like asian dictators emperors that like will claim that they're gods yeah you know like North Korea or yeah. back in the Chinese dynasties that they would they would claim they were gods and we kind of look at that like oh ha 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 but this is kind of like that yeah you know because you're putting yourself over God if you're the authority of the land yeah yeah absolutely in fact the um there is a there is an argument that World War II as an example could have ended without the nuclear hmm. uh, explosions uh, because. There was a there was a there was an offer on the table from the Japanese to end hostilities, but the emperor, the divine emperor, wanted divine. to retain his divine empire. You hmm. know, and, and and we didn't want that. We when we talked about unconditional surrender, yeah. part of what we were saying is Ooh. you can't understand yourself to be divine anymore. Ooh. And so the theory is that we rejected it, and we had these new toys we wanted to try out, and it got ugly. You know now. Yeah. Later, the argument is that later people came along and said, well, it was the ethical thing to do because of all the lives it saved. But arguably... Interesting. That's just an argument. Yeah. It's, 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 it's unknown how many Americans would have died if we had to actually say... Right. Storm Tokyo. Yeah. Know? Anyway, so so those are the main issues, I would say. And, and actually, it'll be... We'll kind of go through John Wycliffe pretty quickly, I think, because mm-hmm. of the, the groundwork we've laid. But let me say this last thing. It's often said that the, and I'm stealing this from the Gospel Coalition website. I'm not a big Gospel Coalition fan, but there was an article that summarizes this well. It says this, the material principle of the Reformation is justification by grace alone, what we call solo gratia, through faith alone, solo fide. The formal principle of the Reformation is scripture alone. Mm. So people talk about the, the, again, the material principle, and I always get these confused, but the material principle 
and the formal principle. So the material principle are the doctrinal issues. Mm -hmm. But the formal principle is the authority. That's the thing that you have to it's argue It's sort of like for. the what and the how. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and so ultimately, the, the issue that is debated is justification. Yeah. But how do you even get to that point? Well, how do you even know how it works? Right. Yeah. yeah. What To what would you appeal? And so literally, you have reformers engaging in debates where the Catholic Church is basically like, ha, ha, ha. You know, it's so funny that you think you can sit here and argue the Bible with us. We're the authority. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's really, it's it's a world we almost cannot comprehend. Mm -hmm. And it's um it, it's a it's a world in which um we we just take for granted that information is available to us, that we have sovereignty as a human being, that mm -hmm. we have rights as a human being to to argue this sorts of thing, that the church can be held to account, yeah, that the Bible is available and authoritative. I mean, there are and and are, by, by the way, arguably this all gives rise to something like capitalism, democracy, republican government. Um, you know, the the right of a person to uh live life on their terms. Yeah. The, the foundation of this country, you know, of life, liberty and property or the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Those are all fruits of the reformation. I don't I don't know how it could be denied. They, yeah. they 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 do you think people in their no, I'm not you, but does we we there the peasant in 1173. Yeah. yeah you the idea that you could go to, as a sovereign person to your government and be like, I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. You'd have been laughed out of the room. Yeah. You know, by, 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 by what authority could you say such a, d a stupid thing? Hmm. So there's a lot that we take for granted that hopefully this this little this little series or season will will uh, kind of unpack. unpack. No, that's very interesting. And I admit when we first started talking about this series, I was like, well, will it be sexy enough? Will it be interesting enough? But already, I mean, you're exactly right. We take a lot of things for granted that we don't realize were because of this. So we will be talking about all kinds of people that were involved in this and the big ones and the lesser well-known ones. Because, I mean, everyone's heard of Martin Luther and nailing things to the door, but not everybody's heard of Jan Hus. But we're going to talk about him because he's important. So I hear. Uh, but so stay tuned because next time, I think episode two is going to be John Wycliffe. And we'll take it from there. But uh, until we talk to you again, always question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed. <laughs>